Good morning, and thank you for being here with us. If you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start chapter 2 today. And uh, as we go to get started, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, recognizing that uh, apart from Him, we can do nothing. So let's go to Him and ask Him as the one who provides everything. Lord, we come to you today being a thankful people. Lord, we are thankful for so many different things. Lord, we are thankful for uh, the faithfulness of friendships within the church. Lord, we are thankful that you have provided people that can come alongside us, that we can come alongside, that we can have a friendship and fellowship with. Lord, I'm thankful for a committed and a capable staff at our church who can make these services happen, that they can coordinate and plan everything, and that they are skilled at doing what you've called them to do. Lord, we're thankful for the many volunteers who serve throughout the church and the sound, the band, uh, the children's childhood ed. And Lord, so many volunteers just needed to serve the body to make things go smoothly. Lord, you've also provided uh, financial blessings to our church through the generosity of your people, that our church can pay its bills, keep its lights on, that we can continue to uh, provide the word of God in spoken form and through fellowship and through uh, small groups and Bible studies. And uh, we can together come together to become more like Christ. But I'm also thankful for the many different ages and stages that we have in our church, from the children uh, all the way up through the senior adults. Lord, I'm specifically thankful that you've given us a wide range of ages and Lord, we know that with those different ages come different responsibilities and different problems and different difficulties and also different blessings. Lord, we pray for each of those ages that come with their own unique sets of circumstances that you would provide for, uh, that you would answer prayer, that you would show yourself capable to meet the needs of the singles who are looking for a spouse, of the widows who are grieving, of the young parents who are trying to make it through the day, of the older parents who see the problems and the sin in their adult children, grandparents who feel that they can't always do what they need to be doing and help in the way that they need to help. Lord, there's so many different ways that we come to you and we bring our prayers to you asking that you would be the God to the fatherless, that you would be the God of the broken, Lord, that you would meet those people where they are and that you would show that you are fully capable in all those ways. Lord, we also pray for our city. Lord, we pray for our civic leaders in the city and in the county that they would be people that know you. If they don't yet know you and have a saving, eternal relationship with Christ, we pray that you would bring someone along in a situation that would cause them to reflect on their their sin, their guilt before you, uh, but that would also provide a way of salvation and a, a hope of eternity for them. Lord, we pray for Crossroads, the school, that they would continue to draw in new students, that those students would continue through their teachers and through their chapels and through their Bible studies, be pointed to you, that the teachers would point them back to the word when they have problems, that they would point them directly to Christ. Lord, we also pray for the other churches in town. I think of uh, 
Lance today preaching and Jim Garrison. And Lord, we just ask that your words would be clear to them, that they would have the, the hope of the gospel on their tongues, that the people of those churches would be built up in the way of Christ, that the church body would be unified, that they would rally around one common purpose, that they would have your plans and your purpose in their hearts and in their minds. Lord, we are people that are desperately in need of you. Lord, we have plans of our own, we have thoughts of our own, but apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, we ask that as we open your word today and we read the words that you've given through your spirit to Paul, now to us, we ask that because you are capable and we are not, that you would show us what you have for us, that you would make it clear through your word how our individual lives can reflect Christ, how our corporate lives in the church can be a better picture of the unity that you have, both with the Spirit and with the Son, and with all things that Christ has created. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So in Philippians 2, if you're still turning there, uh, I just want to say, if you are new here with us, thank you for being here today. Uh, a couple of the things that are important to us as a church that I just wanted to give to you and remind you of if you've been here for a long time. And one of those things is the centrality of the Word of God. We believe that the Word of God is sufficient for all things, that the Word of God is what we put our hope on. And so we believe that the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, the exhortation of what to do with what you know, is a vital part of the Christian life. We also believe that evangelism is an important part of the church life. That's both personal evangelism, meaning that I am willing to tell somebody else about the good news that I know because of Jesus, that I have a hope of salvation because of what Christ has done on the cross, paying for my sins, but also corporate evangelism. That as Jesus says that the church and the church's unity reflects the gospel and so that we as a church would be unified and have common purposes that we would reflect the good news of Christ. We also believe that discipleship is important. We read the Great Commission at the end of every service, which says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and then teaching them. To make a disciple just means to teach someone to follow Jesus. That's the process is they've repented of their sins, they've put their hope in Christ for eternity, and now here's what it means to live like Christ. And we also see throughout the New Testament of the church loving each other. So we as a church want to be known that we love, we care about one another. We also care about the lost. We care about the community. We care about the things that we can do that will show the love of Christ to others. And so today we're going to be looking at how that is kind of reflected in Paul. In Paul's writings here in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look specifically at how faithful unity is putting others first, which leads to joy. So faithful unity within the church is putting others first, and that ultimately leads to joy. So let's go ahead and read chapter 2, the first four verses. Paul says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way 
having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul starts this section with, if then there is any encouragement. Since then, there is encouragement. Since you are being encouraged, which means, which means we need to kind of look at what that encouragement means. And we saw that last week in verses 27 through 30, that since you are citizens of heaven, here's the encouragement. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit and one accord. Contend together for the faith of the gospel. Don't be frightened by your opponents. It's a sign of their destruction, but a sign of your salvation. And then since Christ has given, granted a gift to you, that you would believe and suffer for Christ. So taking that, Paul's saying, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Paul's telling them, these are the things that Christ has given to you. Encouragement, consolation, fellowship, affection, and mercy. Since Christ has given these things to you, Paul's teaching them, but these are also the things that Paul is living. Paul's beliefs and Paul's knowledge of what Christ has given are reflected in his words, but also in his actions. Paul's life represents what Paul believes. Paul is an authentic follower of Jesus, okay? His words match his actions. When people see those two things lining up, they say, that is somebody who believes what they say. If our lives or our words do not match, one of them is off. Either we don't really believe it or we don't really believe it enough to do it. And so Paul is saying that the encouragement, the consolation of love, the fellowship, the affection, the mercy are things that he truly believes and are things that he is giving back to the church in Philippi. When we do that, we present the gospel to people around us. We present the good news as a believable, trustworthy, authentic representation of Christ. A few months ago, I was helping to plan a, a funeral service, and I was talking to one of the funeral homes in town, and the guy asked, where's the service going to be held? So I said, it'll be held at our church, at Grace Community Church. And another guy down the hall was like, oh, I like going to Grace Community Church. So I was like, why? He's like, oh, they're helpful. He said, last time I was there, I had a van full of flowers and arrangements. And he said, I parked in front, I carried one inside, and then somebody came out and helped me carry the rest of them in. Helped me do my job. So in his mind, because we were kind and helped him carry in flowers, he has a good picture of our church in his mind because we represented Christ well. We said we love others, and then we demonstrated that we loved others by simply helping someone carry in flowers. Paul says, when you do these things, then make my joy complete. 
When I heard that, it made my joy complete that our church loves others, that people see that our church is a church that loves people well. And that's authentic. That's real Christianity that we believe that the Bible calls us to love other people. But we also believe that Christ calls us to love other people. So we know it and we do it. And that's what Paul's purpose of this passage is. If then there is any encouragement, any consolation, any fellowship, any affection, any mercy, then make my joy complete. Make my joy complete by thinking in the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So Paul's joy will be fulfilled, it will be complete if they do these things. Now you have to remember that as we've talked about, Paul has come to Philippi, the church to whom this letter is written. He has come to them and he brought the good news to them. They did not know anything of Jesus. They did not know anything of salvation. And Paul, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, comes to this church. He meets first with Lydia in Acts 16 and he tells her the good news. She repents and believes. Other people repent and believe. They all start coming to faith in Christ, believing what Paul is teaching them. And then Paul's thrown in jail. You remember there's an earthquake. The jailer is about to kill himself because the jailer believes that his prisoners have escaped. And Paul tells him, no, we haven't escaped. Don't kill yourself. So the jailer comes to know the Lord and repents. And Paul is now their spiritual father. He's the one who has brought them the relationship with Jesus and told them, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So when Paul's saying, make my joy complete, he's speaking fatherly to them. That as my spiritual children, you can make my joy complete by. And then he outlines his expectations. And so Paul is going to tell them, to make my joy complete means that you're fulfilling these expectations. That's what verse two is gonna be. But then Paul also says, I also have an explanation of how to do it. So he gives him his expectations and then he's gonna follow that up with an explanation. And that's, it's hard to grasp until you read it, but let me tell you this way. When I tell my kids to clean their room I'm giving them my expectation that the room will be clean. But I also need to give them an explanation of what that means. Because if I just tell them, go clean your room, I'm not going to get what I'm wanting. My expectation will not be met. So I explain it. When you go in your room and you clean it, and I walk in to look at it, there should not be toys on the ground. There should not be dirty clothes shoved under the bed or shoved in the closet. There shouldn't just be a pile of trash in a corner that something is draped over, right? My expectation is that your room will actually be clean and actually clean means the stuff is put away, the toys are cleaned up, the dirty clothes are in the hamper. So I'm giving him my expectation and the explanation. And that's what Paul does here. He gives them the expectation. Now, before we get to the specifics of the four points of his expectation, Paul is their spiritual father. And so I wanted to ask you, who is your spiritual father? 
as the Philippians, Paul brought them the good news. Who brought you the good news? Who is the one that told you? Or maybe there's multiple people that all played a role in bringing the good news of the gospel of Christ to you. That there was bad news that you're a sinner and that you've done wrong things and you've offended a holy and perfect God. But then the good news is that here's a way to be forgiven, that Christ died on the cross to forgive you of all of those sins. That then when God looks at you, God doesn't just see the sinner, God sees the perfection of Christ. Christ's perfection, his righteousness has been covering you so that God only sees Christ's forgiveness in you. Who brought that to you? For me, it was my mom when I was about seven years old, sitting on the edge of the bed, and she told me those things. If you know that person who you would consider your spiritual father, or that person that brought you the good news, call them, text them, email them. If they're still alive, tell them thank you for bringing me the good news. That makes their joy complete. For you to say, you played an instrumental role in my life by bringing the good news to me. And I wanted to thank you for that. Maybe it's at VBS or a Sunday school and you don't even know who the people are. Send an email to the church. Send an email to somebody and tell them, I went, when I, 30 years ago when I was a kid, I went to your church, I went to VBS, Sunday school, and I came to know the Lord because of the volunteers. What a great reminder and a great encouragement that is in Christ to make their joy complete. Now, as Paul's their spiritual father, he gives them this expectation, and here are the four things that he wants them to do in verse 2. Make my joy complete by, number one, thinking in the same way. Number two, having the same love. Number three, united in spirit. Number four, intent on one purpose. So Paul starts with thinking in the same way. Now, thinking in the same way does not mean that we have to have a uniformity of opinions, Okay, that means that we do not have to believe the same in things that are our opinions. You can be a Dodgers fan and still come to church. <laughs> Said it with a straight face. Totally a straight, no, I'm just kidding. We don't have to like the same sports teams. We don't have to like the same food. We don't have to even have the same exact beliefs on the secondary issues. We can come together and we can think the same way. And here's why. If you think like Christ and I think like Christ, we are thinking the same way. You're not thinking the way that I think. I'm not thinking the way that you think. We are both coming together and say, we are thinking the way that Christ thinks. We have the same thinking as Christ. And if that's our real goal, then we have the same thinking. Though we may differ on other things, our thinking is the same as Christ. And that's Paul's goal here. So if we don't think alike, then we should both look and say, am I thinking like Christ? 
thinking like Christ and having the same thoughts should draw us closer and draw us both to Christ because we are thinking the same way as Christ. If you are challenged or given some pushback by a Bible-believing, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, faithful, trustworthy Christian, if that type of genuine, authentic follower of Christ is giving you some pushback, then maybe it's time to pause and just see what that looks like. Is there some truth in that? If someone's telling you, I don't know if that directly aligns with the Bible. Here's how I see it. That's just cause for pause and say, let me think about this. Let's look and see what the word of God says. Paul's going to go on and talk about pride and humility. For us to be able to say, am I thinking like Christ is to be teachable. For us to be able to say, I want to be thinking in the same way. My goal is to make Paul's joy complete by thinking in the same way. It doesn't mean you're wrong or that person's wrong or right. It just means let's pause and see, are we thinking in the same way? The second thing he says is having the same love. Now again, Paul's talking about the same love as Christ has, that we are demonstrating a Christ-likeness as Christians. We are followers of Christ. So having the same love, that Christ has. And to that, we're gonna turn back a page or maybe two to Ephesians chapter five. So if you have a physical Bible, it's easy. It's just a page back, page or two back. In Ephesians five, Paul talks about the type of having the same love that Christ has. So if we are to have the same love, we need to look at Christ and say, what kind of love does he have if we are gonna follow him? And Christ's love for the church, for us, is both unconditional and it's sacrificial. Christ's love is unconditional in that he doesn't require us to be perfect. His grace, as the song said, meets us just where we are. We don't need to first do the right things to come to the Lord. His love is unconditional, that he forgives sinners, not because of what they do, but because of what he has done, okay? His grace is unconditional, and his love for us is unconditional. And it's also sacrificial. He believed and had the action that matched. Sacrificial on the cross, that Christ was willing to die for us on the cross, it was unconditional, it was sacrificial. So let's look at Ephesians chapter five and I wanna specifically have husbands take note to some of these. As Paul was the spiritual father of the Philippian church, having given them the gospel, there's also a call for husbands to take responsibility. So whether you're the actual one who has brought salvation through Christ, to your wife and to your children. You have a responsibility to her and to them. And so let's look in Ephesians chapter five to see how this idea of having the same love as Christ 
looks here. So Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So husbands are loving their wives as like, similar to how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what Paul's saying is that husbands should love their wives sacrificially like Christ did. The reason being to make her, verse 26, holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. The washing of water by the word is a picture that we're going to see of being sanctified, being made pure, being set apart, that the word of God through the blood of Christ cleanses us. It's a picture of soap and water cleansing our physical bodies and the word of God cleansing our spiritual bodies. So verse 27, he did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Here's the job for husbands. In the same way, husbands, so that is the same way as Christ, okay, the same way that Christ has sacrificed and loved unconditionally, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it. Okay, so the husband is to provide and care for his wife just as he does himself. End of verse 29, just as Christ does for the church. So just as Christ cares for and provides for the church, so too are husbands to do that. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are all members of his body. For this reason, verse 31, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So husbands have a responsibility to care for and to provide just as Christ did for the church. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I want to start with physical. Do you as a husband care for your wife physically? I don't mean the basics of like food, shelter, and clothing, but I mean more like, do you protect her? Do you provide rest for her? You know, if you're gone out of the house working all day and she's home with the kids working all day and you come home having worked all day and put your feet up on the couch and ask someone to bring you something from someone who has worked all day, we're not loving sacrificially like Christ loved the church. Do you share the workload of the home? Whether your wife is home or whether your wife works out of the house, do you share the burden of responsibility? Very practically, do you change diapers? Looking to see who has young enough kids. Okay, do you change diapers? 
right? There's diapers that need to be changed. If you don't know how to change a diaper as a husband and as a father, if you've never changed your diapers, not your diapers, the kids' diapers, <laughs> you don't know how to change their diapers, you avoid changing their diapers because I feel sick or whatever your excuse is, I'm gonna ask your wives to get the communication card out and write your name, comma, diapers, and your phone number, okay? And I will be there this week because you need to learn how to change a diaper. Because listen, if you can't change a diaper, your wife can't be away from the kids for more than 10 minutes. And maybe you bring them to the nursery and that's the only time that she gets some rest. That's the only time that she gets away from having that responsibility. That's something that you can do, that you can help with, that you can get home from work and say, oh, you've changed six diapers today. How about I finish changing the rest of the diapers? How about I make some dinner? That's enough for the diapers. Are you affectionate in a way that your wife appreciates? Do you know how your wife appreciates affection? Do you believe that your wife is beautiful? Do you believe that your wife is beautiful and you tell her, but you also prove it by not letting your eyes wander everywhere? Do you know what causes her stress? Do you care enough to do something about it? As Christ loves and provides for the church and cares for the church, husbands are to do likewise. Not only physically, though spiritually. Do you pray with your wife? Do you pray for your wife? Do you encourage her to use her spiritual gifts? Do you know what they are? Does your wife have a small group of women that she can get together with and have a common bond of we have problems and we have situations that are unique to us and do you make time for that? Do you give her that opportunity to go and be with other women? Do you encourage her to take those opportunities? Do you know how she likes to receive encouragement? Does she like when you to, for you to tell her something? Does she like for you to do something for her? You know, one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do the fruits of the Spirit live in you and are they demonstrated to your wife? Do you treat your wife with love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Do the fruits of the Spirit live in you and are they evident to your wife? You know, this passage in, in Ephesians 5 says that in verse uh, 26, Christ loved the church to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. So the word is what washes we are willing to shower daily. You wash your hands, you wash your face, you take a shower. It's a picture here of what physical cleanliness looks like. So as often as you shower, you should wash with the word. If you don't shower every day with either one of those, you should. It's a good thing to do. 
If you're OCD a little bit and you wash your hands every hour, then get a Bible and keep it real close to the sink so that you can wash your hands and wash your heart, that we can be cleansed, that we can be pure, that we can be holy, so that we are presented without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless to the Lord. So husbands have that responsibility of physically and spiritually caring for their wives, but also sacrificially. Christ sacrificed himself on the cross. Do you prioritize your wife? Do you give time to her? Do you give and sacrifice what you could have received that she might receive? Do you listen to what she says? Do you act on what she says? Are you quick to forgive, to show grace? Are you willing to sacrifice for her? Now, I know for most husbands, of all those questions and ideas, there are some that stuck out, stuck out in your mind that you're like, I'm good at these three, five, whatever they are. But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for how can I become more like Christ? So my encouragement to you is go home today or sometime this week and listen to this part of the message and say to your wife, help me help you. In what ways can I better reflect Christ to you? Which of the fruits of the Spirit do I need to ask the Lord to grow in me? To be proactive to say, as Christ loves the church, so too I want to love you. And it's, it's about showing up for your wife and for your children. It's about being there that you as the husband to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And it's not a word. It's a reality. It's a lifestyle. It's an action that we don't know and believe, but we also pair with actions. That's what Paul's talking about in make my joy complete by thinking in the same way and having the same love. These are things that he wants them to do. He also wants them to be united in spirit. And we talked about unity a lot last week. The, the big picture of it, if you, don't, if you weren't here, you don't want to go back and watch it, was verse 20... 27, chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, I want you to live your life worthy of the gospel, and here's the unity, that I'll hear that you're standing firm in one spirit and one accord, that you're contending together for the faith of the gospel. So now Paul's telling him that's what that united in spirit means, that you have the same spirit and the same plans being intent on one purpose. It's the last one that he gives them of the expectations, that they would be intent on one purpose. Now, the one purpose is where the greatest commandment and the great commission come together and form a raging river of beliefs and actions in the life of a Christian. The greatest commandment, Jesus is asked by one of the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole of the law is fulfilled in these commands. Love God and love others. 
And then the great commission that we read at the end of every service is go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I have commanded. So love God and love others. Go and make disciples intent on one purpose. Paul's saying, make my joy complete by loving God, loving others, and by going and telling people that you love God and you love others. This is what it means to live and believe authentic Christianity. And this is what Paul's saying, makes his joy complete. When his spiritual children think the same way, they love one another, they're united, and they have one common goal. They're going somewhere together because they believe, because they love, because they believe that unity is more important than your opinion or my opinion. And so Paul is saying, this is what it means to make my joy complete. Doing these two things, the greatest commandment and the great commission, for us means that we are pursuing holiness that we are seeking after God, that we are bringing God glory by striving to do what he has called us to do. So being intent on one purpose is the puzzle pieces of the greatest commandment and the great commission interlocking in the life of a Christian. And that's authentic Christianity. If we're lacking that, it's like a sky without stars. It's like a novel without words. Since it's February, I feel like I can say this. It's like having a gym membership and never going to the gym. It doesn't make sense. Not having these things come together is a contradiction in Christianity. It's not authentic, it's not true Christianity when you say, I believe, but I don't act. And it's not Christianity if you say, I act, but I don't believe. Christianity is when we say, I believe in Jesus, and I'm doing what he's called me to do. I believe that I should love God and love others, and I'm going to tell them, because if I don't, I believe that they will go to hell. I want them to be saved through what Christ has done. The Great Commission, the Great Commandment, coming together is authentic Christianity. And that's what Paul says here, but Paul says it a different way. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he says, For who is our joy? I'll wait till you get it up so you can read it. We'll read it together. For who is our joy, our, our, for who is our hope, our, or joy, or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? Who, when the Lord comes, will Paul point at and say, this is my joy. This is the reason I boast. Because these people have heard and believed. I told them about Christ and they have believed it. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul's glory is not even in himself. It's in what Christ has done in someone else because he believes that he should love God and love others and he believes that he should go therefore 
and tell them about Jesus. John said it this way, a little bit different. Dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health. And just as your whole life is going well, For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you are walking in the truth. Other people who believe in Jesus have come to John and said, hey, you know those people? Man, they're living it. They're really doing it. They heard it and they believe it. Listen to John. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in truth. Men that literally walked with Jesus don't want anything else except to know that the word that they're giving to other people is being heard and received and lived out. Their spiritual father takes great joy and pride in them doing what Christ has called us to do. Our heavenly father takes joy in us doing what Christ has called us to do. Albert Barnes says in this idea of Christian unity and harmony, he says, probably there is no single thing so much insisted on in the New Testament as the importance of harmony among Christians. Now, there is almost nothing so little known. But if it prevailed, the world would soon be converted to God. The New Testament speaks constantly of Christians living in unity. But we often don't. And that's a disservice to the Lord. So Paul gives this expectation that his joy will be made complete if they think the same way, if they have the same love, if they're united in spirit, and if they're intent on one purpose. That's the expectation. And then he gives the explanation of how to do it in verses three and four. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, Selfish ambition is the desire for personal gain or glory or something that I am personally focused on, my ambition. Conceit is thinking that I am better than other people for whatever reason. Both personal um, ambition and conceit are rooted in pride. And in the life of a Christian, Pride should find no hiding place. Pride is the opposite of what it means to be saved by grace. Empty-handed, we come to the Lord. And empty-handed, God fills it with his grace. We have nothing, we bring nothing. And so our selfish pride is a slap in the face to God who says, you have nothing, you bring nothing, I want nothing, but we have selfish ambition and conceit. Instead of, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Pride in the life of a Christian is often easily seen in the desire to be right, the desire to prove that they are right arguing over biblical doctrines, 
arguing over things that some people in the same small group of Bible study don't even know what you're talking about and just wanting to win a war of words but lose the heart of humility. It serves no purpose to win an argument to lose the war. Pride wants us to say, I need to be right. I don't need to be teachable because what could that person teach me? Pride gets in the way of being able to be humble, to be able to consider others as more important than ourselves. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Without love, knowledge can easily become a tool of pride. Without love, knowledge can be the reason, good biblical knowledge can be the reason that we're prideful because we know it, but we don't do it. Having knowledge without love is antithetical to what God has called us to do. It goes against everything that we read in the scriptures. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We're pretty good at the first part of verse four, looking out for our own interests. We don't even need to worry about that most of the time. We worry about the second part, but looking out for the interests of others. That's where our hearts and our minds need to focus is what does the other person need? And this is difficult. It's hard to consider someone else as more important than ourselves. But doing this is exactly what Paul's talking about in verse two, not seeking to be right, to make sure everyone knows that you're right, but seeking to be humble, seeking to put other people before yourself. And as we close, I wanted to kind of like look at the, the big picture because I like how this passage goes together. Paul's saying, since you have encouragement in Christ, live like him. Since you've received these things from Christ, then live like him. And if you ask, how do I do that? Paul answers it in verse three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. And if you're gonna live like Christ, think the same way, have the same love, be united, be intent on one purpose. How? By being humble. How am I supposed to be humble? Verse four, Everyone should not only, or should look out not for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Since Christ has given you this encouragement, live like him. How do I do that? I, I'm humble. I care more about others. And how do I do that? I look out for their interests. So what does that person need? How do I care better for that person? Our unity in Christ makes my joy complete, Paul says. That when they're living together, in harmony, when they're walking together, having the same heart, having the same intentions, having the same purpose. That's what faithful unity is. It's saying that my desires are less important than your desires. My being right is less important than your being loved. My plans, less important than your plans. 
It's looking out for the interests of others. It's what Christ did for us. Christ didn't look out for his own interests, take himself down off the cross. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, but not my will be done, but yours. Looking out for my interests and your interests instead of his own. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we are faithful people who, Lord, see what a a great need it is that we would not only have the same desires of Christ, but we would also have the same plans, the same actions, the same outworking of your spirit working and living in our life, that we would know the right things to do and we would do the right things, that we would be a picture of what it means to follow Christ. And Lord, forgive us when we so easily get it wrong. Lord, give us encouragement when we get it right. Help us to encourage others and live a life that is worthy of the calling that you've given us, a worthy calling of the gospel to love you, to love others, to know what it means to make disciples, to teach them, to put their interests above our own. Lord, I pray that as men and as husbands that we would take that personally and seriously within our own families. And as the church, I pray that we would take that call as a collective group that we would see that you have given us opportunity, not only in our city that our church can be a beacon flashing of hope and of light, but also as we take the gospel with us that we are Christians everywhere we go, with our unbelieving family and coworkers, with our friends and our neighbors who are going through difficult times, that we can provide for them comfort, we can provide for them hope. Lord, we pray that these words would echo in our hearts and in our minds, that we would seek out the interests of others, not selfish ambition, conceit, but that we would put others first in humility. Lord, we pray that that would start in our own hearts, in our own minds, that we would personally choose to be humble before you and before others. Lord, may our Christianity be authentic and may it be real, may it be evident, and may others wonder why we have the hope that we have. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.